I like Beowulf. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Chindell, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Chapter 14, which is ridiculous because we're definitely over halfway through now. Yeah. During the reading and discussion of this chapter, we passed the halfway mark. Ah! Right? Congratulations to us. Let's see. We officially launched Thanksgiving. We relaunched in February. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we passed 20,000 downloads total, 20,000 total downloads earlier this month. Was it this month? Because it's the fourth uh, now. I guess it was, I don't know. I don't know when we passed it. but we Over did. Memorial Day weekend. And it was very exciting. Yay. So we are now over 20,000 total downloads. So thanks to everyone who's listening and engaging with us on the social medias and commenting and things. Uh, it's it's exciting to see people being interested in what we're doing and listening and doing stuff. So thanks to everyone who's who's doing this. It's been fun. We're excited to keep going. Uh, we've had a couple people ask us what we're moving on to next and what our future plans are. We the, have six months. We have six months. <laughs> Because it took us six months to get this far. And at this rate... We'll be done by Thanksgiving. Yeah, we'll be done by Thanksgiving. And I think the idea at that point is to move on to book one. We have two thoughts. The first thought is move on to book five, formation of character, and keep going with the whole philosophy thing. And the books that haven't been read, the books that haven't been discussed, the ones that are not as popular... Because number one and number six are the most popular. Formation of character is number five. The other thought is we need to read volume one because we are currently homeschooling in a Charlotte Mason uh, style. Therefore, we need to know what we're doing. And as good as it is to know the philosophy of something, the why, it's also good to know the what and the how. And she wrote that down for us. She did. So we should probably read it. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going back and forth between those ideas right now, between diving further into the philosophy and jumping into book five or diving into book one. Let us know what you think, because we will take your thoughts into consideration. Yeah, because we don't really know which way we're going to go at this point. It's it's really up in the air. But those those are our plans at this point. Uh, We've got some other ideas for other projects and things that are kind of on the back burner that that we're discussing right now and we're thinking about. So there there potentially will be some other things coming out in the future. There's probably not going to be anything coming out soon, but hopefully before the end of the year, we'll we'll have some other projects to kick off. So this week we're talking about episode 14. Episode 14. Episode 14. This is episode 34. Goodness gracious. (laughs) Talking about chapter 14. It's been a long day already. Is it 34? Chapter, episode, numbers in my brain. Because I think we have 33 out, so we have 34. So this week we're talking about chapter 14, 
which is parents are concerned to give the heroic impulse. Which this is another review. This is a review of History of Early English Literature by Stopford A. Brook in two volumes. The fascinating part is this book is, it seems like, you can get it on Google Books. It's in the public domain. It's been scanned in on archive.org. So I was actually reading part of it. Cool. Yeah, it really was. It's kind of like a college textbook. And she mentions that a little bit in here. So Stopford was an Irish churchman, royal chaplain, and writer. He was ordained in the Church of England in 1857, held a bunch of different positions. He was chaplain to Empress, to the Empress Frederick in Berlin. And then he became the chaplain in ordinary to Queen Victoria. And then in 1880, he seceded from the church, being no longer able to accept its leading dogmas and officially became an independent preacher for a little bit. Interesting. So he's Irish. And the book he wrote, the his this or this book he wrote, dealt with the older England over the sea. And it ends with the accession of Alfred when he came to the throne in eighteen I'm sorry, in eight hundred seventy one. So this book talks about before then. So this is like six hundred AD. Mm-hmm. What's interesting though is Before Alfred, literature was poetry. After Alfred, it became prose. So he kind of was the delineating point between the two types of literature. And so he is going into a number of different pieces of poetry from that time frame. Interesting. Yeah. So speaking of Alfred, there's a show on Netflix called The Last Kingdom, which is a show based on a book series by Bernard Cromwell. And it is a work of historical fiction set at that time period. And one of the things that they highlight is Alfred's desire to write everything down and to write it down in a narrative form so that people in the future can read it. So that's interesting that that that's the dividing point. Yeah. I wonder how much he had to do with that. It says one of the things that I I wrote down was, and this was directly from the preface to the book. Um, Hmm. So this is, this is. Direct from. Stopford's work. Brooke, which is his last name? Brooke. This is definitely from Mr. Brooke's own writing. A few years after his ascension, the last unplundered seats of learning were destroyed. All the muses were now silenced. But before Alfred died, a new English literature had begun, and in a new land, and the king himself was its origin. What had been was poetry. This was prose. The country of English poetry had been Northumbria. The country of English prose was Wessex. So Interesting. Okay, so Northumbria was, and again, this is based... My knowledge is based entirely on that show, which is fiction. So take it for what it's worth. But Northumbria was where the Saxons were. Excuse me. It's where the Danes were. Northumbria was where the Danes were. And so that makes sense that that would have been in 
rhyme and verse. So it would have been able to be spoken, sung, sung and passed on verbally and, and orally. And then Wessex is where Alfred was and was trying to set up the kingdom of England. And so it makes sense that prose was from Wessex and rhyme and verse were from Northumbria. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That is very, very interesting. So we're going to be talking about a college textbook. And why on earth does Charlotte Mason, why does she call this a very treasure trove? And she says, it is unnecessary to say a word about the literary value and importance of Mr. Stopford Brooks' great work. There is nothing like leather, and to parents, all things present themselves as they may tell on education. Here is a very treasure trove. That's what she ends the chapter on, right? Yeah. She says, oh my goodness, guys, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Go read it. Uh, I want to say this was published. Can you look that up? I think it was published recently for her, like in 1895 or something. John has the computer. My computer's down. It's, it's connected, but it's lower. So it doesn't get the fan noise on the microphone. 1892. I feel really good about that. What did you say? 95. You missed it by like I missed years. it by a letter turn or a number turned around. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> this this one also has it listed as 1899. There were two volumes. So maybe this is volume two. I don't know. You can get it for 20 bucks on Amazon. Or read it on Google Books for free. So, should we start with what they she says about it? Now oh, that we now that we know what it is. So, copy the copyright is 1980 or 1892. It was reprinted in 1899. So, 1892 is when it was. Yeah, so she writes down this quote of his at the very start or the editor is the editor Stafford book. The editor of Lyra Heroica. That's a totally different book. Oh, goodness gracious. That is a a book called Lyra Heroica, a book of verse for boys, selected and arranged by William Ernest Henley, 1891. Interesting. So she just found this really awesome quote and put it in here. Well, and it's from a book of... A book of verse. A book of verse for boys. So that's, that's pretty fitting Which, that she would know that work. I'm, I looked into it a little bit also because I found that rabbit trail and followed it and a little. followed it, yep. They ordered the poetry in that book by the year it was released so really yeah interesting i honestly thought it would be kind of interesting to get that one and actually do that one in our school now did you look into what type of poetry it was like was it no i don't know poetry well i mean because she's (laughs) she's talking in this chapter about heroic poetry and we'll get to talking about beowulf here in a second or maybe half hour the 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 lyra heroica had I believe it had poetry and poets that William Ernest Henley believed they should all know. And it, it like you said, it's there to inspire them to, to set forth the beauty of a cause, ideal, and a passion to set forth all of these things in front of these boys. Hmm. And I think it would be used more in the secondary levels than, than more of the primary. But that's me flying by the seat of my pants so well okay so the lyra heroica is also available on amazon for 20 dollars or 18 dollars 
to set forth as only art can the beauty and the joy of living the beauty and the blessedness of death the glory of battle and adventure the nobility of devotion to a cause an ideal a passion even the dignity of resistance the sacred quality of patriotism that is my ambition here Heroic poetry contains such inspiration to noble living as is hardly to be found elsewhere. I don't know. I've never, I don't want to say never because I I had to read it in high school and that kind of stuff. But the emotion and passion and inspiration in poetry has never been a part of my life. Well, I know I talked about it at some point on one of our recordings, but when I was a kid, mom read the Iliad, the Iliad and the Odyssey to me and my brothers, but she read a narrative version for children, I believe. And so it took the rhyme and verse. Changing from poetry to prose. It changed it from poetry to prose. And I remember really enjoying the story. And so I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure as to why the pro or why the uh, poetry would be that much better than the prose. So I just realized this, remembered this in our copy of St. George and the Dragon by Margaret Hodges. It's, it's a telling of the story in prose with snippets thrown in every so often snippets of the the snippets of the actual ballad or uh, tale saga makes me wonder what the poem actually is yeah and how how it would translate to or how how easily you would be able to follow the story with it i also see an opportunity for a publishing company to do release or not maybe not a publishing company but a set of educational books for children of heroic poetry and put nice pictures in there, like our St. George book. But instead of have the narrative, have it be the metered verse. Well, and the, honestly, that's getting into what he did, what Stopford Brook did. He didn't put pictures and stuff to it, but what Mr. Brook did was he had a section of prose where he would kind of tell the story and then he would put in the section of poetry and it's a translation. So it's from, you know, ancient English, Anglo-Saxon English. Right. But he, he kept that poetry as much as he was able to at the same time as explaining it. And she says, she says, she says in here, We hope the, uh, this is on page 145, we hope the author of early English literature will sometime give us the whole poem translated with a special view to children and interspersed with his own luminous teaching as we have it here. Oh, so he didn't actually print the whole thing in either prose or narrative. He kind of went back and forth. No. So this last section, starting at the action of the poem all the way to our gentle forefathers is the, that is an entire quote word from word from page 29 of his book oh interesting so that is all his words that is exactly there's a couple of dot dot dots where she cut out some sure but that's exactly what he did 
So he had prose and then he wrote or he then had the metered verse and then prose. And so he went back and forth. Exactly. Interesting. Well, anyway, I mean, if I guess that's that's what I'm saying, though, is if there is such value to poetry, especially heroic poetry like this for children, then it needs to be available for children. Then it needs to be available and consumable by children. And the way that our children consume books at this point is in picture books. So there's something to see to go along with the words. Mm-hmm. Now, is that good or not? Should they just use their imaginations? I don't know. Each has their place. Each has their value. They do. Which is, which is where both books without pictures, books with pictures, and various forms of media, be mm-hmm. it just audio or audiovisual, all have their place. That's true. So therefore, I see an opportunity for someone who wants to <laughs> do that. There are so many things that if I were an illustrator, I'd be like, oh my goodness, I could do this. Let me draw these pictures. Yeah, neither Crystal nor I are are accomplished drawers. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not even going to say artists because <laughs> I, I, I... I enjoy it when I take the time to do it, but I have never taken the time to do it. Which is something that as I get more into nature journaling, which again is a part of mm-hmm. Charlotte Mason education, will happen almost by default because mm-hmm. that's part of it. That's true. And a nature journal is not only the drawings, but that is a, That's a portion part of, it. of it. Yeah. Again, a well-rounded education. Mm-hmm. So, absolute side tangent. <laughs> There's a webcomic I randomly found, and it is a modern-day retelling of... Shakespeare? No, no. Uh, Hades and Persephone and, and oh, the, that's the right. Greek myths. And it's mostly mostly illustrations, and it, it has been absolutely fascinating. And unfortunately, I am caught up, and so I have to wait every <laughs> week for a new one to come out. Isn't that the worst? <laughs> this is why I don't watch current shows. TV shows. I wait until the seasons are done yep. so I yep. can binge them. Oh, I was reading... I was reading a couple different web comics and I was all caught up on all of them. And then the author of one of the web web comics had a mental breakdown. Oh. And he went on hiatus for like 12 months. Well, more power to him for stopping, but Yeah, he he spent some time in a hospital in a recovery center and like he he had some major issues, but he's he's back and he's doing stuff and I I was never able to find the time to get back into it after we moved to here. So I stumbled across one of them at one point and oh yeah, had some fun going through it again. <laughs> but at this point, it's, oh man, I am so far behind. It would take me so long to catch back up. And I don't remember the beginning of the story and all of the narrative twists and turns. And Well, I found it and read up to like, I don't know episode 30 or something and was like oh my goodness this is awesome but there i don't have time for keeping up with a web comic and so then a couple months later i found it again and restarted at the beginning and and kept track of the people better and it yeah now i'm like 60 episodes in and caught up yeah so the one one of them that i follow is on page 1165 
Goblins is on book five, and each book has 60-ish pages. And then there's Darths and Droids. Lore Olympus. And you can find it on webtoons.com. Darths and Droids is on episode 1774. Uh, This is on episode 65. There's a point you get to in some of these that if you're not keeping up with it and you fall behind and then you fall behind for years, they, they just pass you by. They just keep going and oh, going. Gosh. It's so good. I wonder if any of these people have print copies of them out. Uh, I know order of the stick releases card table books. So one of the commenters said, I can't believe I read this in two minutes and now I'm going to be losing my mind over this for the next week. <laughs> right that's welcome the to web comics <laughs> the worst but yeah let's see you can get order of the stick books he has five and a zero and a minus one and a one half and a d <laughs> so so on his on his books page there's book one two three four five Zero, which is the prequel, minus one. The pre-prequel? The pre-prequel, one half, the third prequel, and then there's... No, that would be just qual. Right? Well, if you have a prequel, a pre-prequel, you just got to take off both pre's, and then you have a qual. Right? Oh, my gosh. And then you have number one. And then there's book D. It's a side, side stories and alternate universe. That's hilarious. Yeah, available book from Other Dimension. Okaduk for uh, $25. So, you know. Father's Day's coming. <laughs> <laughs> These books are hilarious. <laughs> are they child appropriate? I would have to read through them again. I mean, Calvin and Hobbes is not always child appropriate. No, but this also has people cutting guys in half. And oh, okay. I mean, they're 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 stick people, but they're cutting goblins in half and heroic poetry. Right. I don't know how appropriate heroic poetry is either, because so we have I totally unrelated to the, this chapter. I got a book from the library called The Hero Be- Beowulf because I didn't know the story. Anyways, he pulls Grendel's arm off at the end, and it runs away and dies. Oh, that's badass. <laughs> so, so I don't know how <laughs> child-appropriate this is anyways. Wow. <laughs> I like Beowulf. <clears throat> I, that is one thing that, that's, that is one way that our culture has changed. Is there used to not be as much squeamishness about things of that nature? So when you would tell stories, you tell everything. I mean, I, I look at any of the fairy tales and nursery rhyme stuff. Yeah, I mean, Grimm's, they are dark. Grimm's fairy tales are really dark. They're very grim. Going, I think I think another bed. issue that that we have is we have preconceived notions about the stories because they've been around so long. We That's have true. 
we have vague impressions about these. And then we get snippets of them in schooling mm-hmm. and not the entire thing and not not a full picture of it. I remember reading in one of my literature books and you only get like a chapter or two of a book. And right. I would blow through it because I was done with my work and I would just be reading my literature book and be like, well, where's the rest of the story? Yeah. And I wouldn't go look for it because I was, you know, fifth grade. Well, and that would take effort that you didn't really want to expend. Now, if it was just over or on the that shelf. I, or that I could do because I was that was what I was reading in class while I was everyone else right. was doing their work. You were sitting there in class. But if there was a bookshelf over to the side that had all of those books, you would have been able to go to your teacher and say, hey, teacher, I read this excerpt from the book and it sounded really cool. Yeah. And your teacher would have been like, great, there's the book. You want to read it? It's, it's there. Go for it. Yeah. So so you have these these preconceived notions of what these stories are. Mm-hmm. And then when you when if you actually read it you go, "Oh my goodness, this isn't what I thought it was." Yeah. Or or they're they're watered down so much to get a synopsis mm-hmm. that it's you, you don't get inspired by it and then you you're turned off to it. Well, and that is one thing that I can remember growing up as soon as I started reading not kids books and when i say kids books i'm thinking the young adult type yeah young adult type i I mean i I read a lot of the red wall books and books of that nature and then when i actually started reading books that were written for an adult audience everything was just so much more real i can remember sitting in the sitting in the van we went shopping grocery shopping i was reading my book so Mom let me stay in the van. And so I was sitting in the van for, I don't know, 45 minutes. And there was a main character that died. I can remember sitting in the car, bawling my eyes out because a main character died in a Star Wars book. Because that was my first connection with, or that was my first experience of somebody that I had a relationship with dying. Hmm. And you don't really get that in young adult books. And, and, and not, and it's not to say that people don't die. I mean, I remember reading, gosh, what's the, the archer lady catching fire. The oh, Hunger Games. Hunger Games. I remember listening to the Hunger Katniss Games. Katniss Everdeen. Yeah. And, and there are, there are any number of people that die in that, in that series, but they don't sit on it and make you feel it. And maybe that's just, I've grown callous, but, but that was something I remember feeling in the moment. And, and there was a, there were any number of characters that had big emotions and they, they felt this person's death and they, they had a funeral and then they, they worked their way through feelings of guilt and sadness and things. And I remember feeling those emotions because I felt them with my friends, the characters, mm-hmm. about my friend, the character's death. So there's something real about reading something that's real. As opposed to a summary or a synopsis. As opposed to a summary or a synopsis, and it's and I'm clearly I'm not saying that Star Wars is real, but it it was it wasn't a summary, it wasn't a synopsis, it wasn't watered down, mm-hmm. so that I didn't feel those things. I don't think that's that. I don't think that is limited to quote unquote adult literature either. No, but that is one of the things we do for our children as we try and protect them from some of those things. And it's not a bad thing. Okay, so more censored than 
than watered down. Right. I, I guess I'm using watered down and censored to, to be the same uh, in the same vein to where if you were trying to water down a version of Beowulf, you probably wouldn't have him rip off the arm of the monster. You might just have him kill the monster or thinking about the story of David and Goliath. David launches a stone into Goliath's forehead and then he takes Goliath's sword and cuts his head off. How many children's books say actually that, say that, say he that David chops, his head, chops his head off? No, there's like, no, the stone hit him and he died. No, the stone hit him and Goliath was knocked out for a minute. And then David chopped his head off. But that's a part of the story that you don't ever hear because we protect our children. And like I said, I don't think that's a bad thing. That, that's a, it, It's just a thing. And so that's that's where we as the parents need to, I don't know, be able to, to know where our children are at. Discernment. Yeah, have, have be able to discern what are what's good for our children at the time, knowing that they do need to know these things and need to be able to read some of those harsh details. But when and how much and... Yeah. Well, and, and I think, again, going back to when the, the Graham brothers pulled together their fairy tales back then... Life happened faster. People grew up faster. It was early and harsh. And life expectancies were shorter. Yeah. Uh, I was I was thinking about it. I, no, I was thinking about it a while ago. Uh, when, when Crystal was pregnant with the, with, with the twins, Lily was first and she was, uh, she was breech. And she was footling breech. And that's a situation where 100 years ago, 200 years ago, Chances are really good that at least one of you three wasn't going to make it through that pregnancy just because of complications that happen. Yeah. Nowadays, chances are pretty good that all of you are making it through and you'll all be fine. Because if something goes wrong, well, we're just going to cut you open and take them out. Or we're just going to plan to cut you open and take them out and ignore the complications. And now we have a set of perfectly happy twin children and i have a healthy alive wife all of which are good all of which are good but a hundred years ago that's that's a reality over over the last two years i might have remarried because i need someone to raise my children and and so that's a reality that our children haven't had to face or we or or we i haven't had to face it because we live in a society where technology has slowed down the rate at which we grow up and experience these things. Which, again, it's not a bad thing, but our children aren't experiencing death on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Anyway, do we want to talk about Beowulf for a little bit? <laughs> um, do we want to actually get into this first section? Because we haven't actually done that yet. I have. have we're you ha- you we're, have. We're t- I'm sorry, we're halfway through the first page now? <laughs> Jeez, we're real good at this. I didn't think we were going to have much to talk about, but all of a sudden we do. So she goes to, we look at our own stuff and we find some good stuff, but we don't have any truly English material so that they go back to the Homeric myths. And then she's turning on saying, well, we have Beowulf. Yeah. My thought, my thought here, as I read that, we have no truly English material. And I was like, well, we've got a lot of American stuff. Uh, what do you mean? To, to run through my head of all of the, the great American novelists. 
Dickens, Twain, uh, Louisa May Alcott, uh, that, that Jane is Austen. Not a, that is not at all what. But that's not what she's talking this about. Is, that is not. That, and and it, it took me a minute to, to realize that, that she's not talking about narrative works. Yeah. I, those names, those names all ran through my head and I was like, man, we have classics and they're great and they're good, but they're not in verse. We're talking 800. Right? Really old. 880. Not, not like 1800. Right. So she, she has, she makes the case that Beowulf is the Ulysses of the Brits. And this is where, you know, he says, where she says, you know, history of early English literature is an an invaluable addition to the library of the student and the man of letters. She's going, also, we can use it for children. Also children. The elemental emotions and heroic adventures of the early English put into verse and tale, strange and eerie as the wildest fairy tale, yet breathed in every line the English temper and the English virtue that go into the making of heroes. Because Beowulf actually takes up a very small portion of the history of early English literature. He has a ton of other stuff in that book. Interesting. It's like a 500, 600 page book and Beowulf takes up up to maybe a page 100. It takes up a, a, a chunk of it, but there is much more in his book. There's much more in his book that's not Beowulf. Yes. Which, so going into this, said, we are told that we may fairly claim the poem as English. Yeah, sure. As in, it's our tongue in our country alone that preserved it. And then, you know, just, the Beowulf is not precisely English. And by not precisely English. The British English, Empire takes everything and makes it theirs. Well, that's very true. <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, you got to give them this, is that the people that came and raped and pillaged brought the tale of Beowulf with them. So the British didn't really, like, go and apprehend it. It was brought to them and... And they were the ones that wrote it down. And they were the ones that wrote it down. Until then, it was just a Viking tale. I just thought that was... But it is kind of funny. The, the British take and usurp everything. So then she goes into a brief introduction of Beowulf. He comes from brave and noble parents. Mildest and more than mortal daring meet in him. He goes to Rothgar to conquer Grendel. And he does. <laughs> so. <laughs> and he does. And apparently comes away with Grendel's arm at one point. This is a brief description of Beowulf. It's the oldest surviving epic poem in English literature. But the characters are not English. They're Vikings from what is now Sweden and Denmark. The full story of Beowulf consists of three parts. The first and best known is the hero's fight with Grendel. And the second part, Beowulf battles Grendel's mother a sea witch, and becomes king of the Getz, the people of southern Sweden. And in the third, Beowulf kills a dragon at the cost of his own life. So, there's Beowulf. Let me show you the picture real quick. Do they have him tearing off Grendel's arm? So here he is fighting Grendel. Nice. Yes! (laughs) Iron weapons wouldn't work against Grendel because magic or something. Sure, why not? So he had to tear he Grendel to, limb from limb. He had to fight 
brute strength. The brute strength. So, so he, um, she compares Beowulf to Nelson. So at the end of his life, he, I guess, gives his life to kill the dragon and has the philosophy of gain honor before you die. That's what's best for a warrior when he's dead. Yeah. Let him who can gain honor before you die. It's the, uh, the, the, the goal of every person is to have your name live forever in the tongues of other people. Mm-hmm. So Nelson is Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson, and he was a British flag officer in the Royal Navy, hmm. noted for his inspirational leadership, grasp of strategy, and unconventional tactics, which together resulted in a number of decisive British naval victories, particularly during the Napoleonic Wars. He was wounded several times in, in combat. Uh, losing the sight in one eye at Corsica at the age of 36, as well as most of one arm in an unsuccessful attempt to conquer Santa Cruz Tenerife. He was shot and killed at the age of 47 during his final victory at the Battle of Trafalgar near the Spanish port city of Cadiz in 1805. Another rabbit trail. He was like absolutely amazingly venerated. Like they they put statues of him really everywhere. And Interesting. The surgeon on board, which is not a respectable position at that day and age, basically preserved him in some sort of liquor so that he could be buried at home. It took him a month to get home. Did you did you say he had the rank of admiral? Uh, vice admiral. <laughs> what might he have preserved him in rum? I think so. Because if so... Yeah, that's where it comes from. That's the rum that I have that's terrible as Vice Ad- or as Admiral Nelson's rum. Yeah, it, it is rum. That's hilarious. And that's where that came from. There, like the, the article I was reading about it said, yeah, there's still rums named after him today. And that's awesome. No, like... It's only... That makes me sad that it's such bad rum, though. So, so you think of... You think George Washington right. for America. Yeah. That's Nelson to that's, the British. That's Nelson to the Brits. Okay. That's why she doesn't say anything other than just his name. Just Nelson. Nelson. Because anybody who's who's reading her work would be like, oh, yeah, Nelson. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. So his iron resolve, he was, you know, very decisive, very grasped the strategy, mm-hmm. inspirational, all of that stuff. And she's comparing Beowulf to Admiral Nelson. Somebody else did also. I'm sorry, no. There was an article I read, and Stopford also compared Beowulf to Nelson. Hmm. So that's, this is, again, from Stopford. Mm-hmm. But it is not only the idea of a hero, which we have in Beowulf. It is also the idea of a king, a just governor, the wise politician, the builder of peace, the defender of his own folk at the price of his life. That's, that's who we want. Mm-hmm. That's who... That's who we want to hold up. Uh, again, we keep going. We owe Mr. Stopford Brook much gratitude for bringing this heroic ideal of the youth of our nation within the reach of the unlearned. We want to hold this up to our kids. We want them to see what life can be. Yeah. And and to have this, this great person to aspire to. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Beowulf or Nelson or 
any of the Homeric epics the, yeah. or the Greek myths. Well, maybe not the Greek myths. Or, or <laughs> I mean, bringing it home, anyone from American history, early American history. See, that's the that's one of the things that we only have four hundred years of history. We, we do. don't have this type of of we before the written word type of stories. We don't, but we do still have great men who did great things. We do, but not of the myth mythological type. That's true. The, we don't have a King Arthur. That's true. We we don't have a Robin Hood. Those types of yeah. larger than life, they could do everything and anything. And it's because our history is so short. I will say, though, I mean, we've, we have people like Paul Bunyan. That's true. Literally larger than life. Literally had a cow that was larger than life. And blue. And blue. Don't ask me why. Blue. <laughs> blue cow. Uh, you know, we, we've got people like Davy Crockett. There, there are American folk heroes who I would say approach that. I, I think there's a difference between a folk hero and an epic tale hero, though. That's true, but we just no one writes epic tales anymore. Maybe that's an issue. It probably is. I don't know. So, and that's that's something that, that I've been running into because one of the things about the way that history is introduced in in the Charlotte Mason education way is you, you do your country's heroic age. Hmm. That's that hero that quote unquote heroic age is and I'm pulling this from memory, so it's it's from before official written recorded history. Like, if you can put an official date to it, then that's not quite the heroic age. So at this point, if we're talking North American history, we're talking Native Americans. Exactly. And Leif Erikson. Exactly. And that's it, because it's written down that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. In 1492. Right. I was going to say 1872, but I knew that was wrong. <laughs> 1492. So, so that even that is is that's history, mm -hmm. and yes, there are epic tales and there are stories and and exaggerations because that's what happens. But there's not the the King Arthur is a man that existed, maybe or hmm. a, kind of a conglomeration of men, right. and it became these tales, and, these, and these tales of Camelot. And Troy was a city that existed. And was burned to the ground. And we know that because of archaeology. But we don't know what actually happened there. All we have are Homer's tales. And I, from what I'm gathering, the purpose in introducing these heroic tales in this heroic age of your own country in first grade, or Form 1, whatever, Form 1B, whatever you want to call it, is to inspire the children which is exactly what she's talking about here this is the title to give the heroic impulse to the children so they see that this is this is there to live up to and it has happened in the past but it's not a very firm in 1492 
Columbus did this. Right. This is back when King Arthur, or back when uh, King Richard was around. You know, back when dragons roamed the land. Yeah. So, I don't, I yeah, don't know. It's interesting. So, and then she goes on to say, Tennyson gives us Arthur. Shakespeare gives us Henry V. And now, Mr. Brooke gives us Beowulf. Yeah. And and she's wishing for another book, but I don't know if she actually got it. So again, the cost of these rather two rather expensive volumes, twenty bucks now. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's one instance where time <laughs> has helped us quite a bit. It is very much more cost effective to get the printed word. Yeah, but so to continue that quote. The cost of these two rather expensive volumes should be well repaid if a single child were to be fired with emulation of the heroic qualities therein sung. So then she starts the quote from the book, which, like you said, I don't I don't know if we really want to get into that. It's prose and then the poetry and then the prose and, and the poetry, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. It's a great way of, of doing it. Yeah. And then she does kind of the same thing. I couldn't find this direct quote from the book. You mean the the riddles? Yes. I also didn't look very hard because it's, again, the five or six hundred page book. Yeah. And the search function wasn't working very well. (laughs) They're in there somewhere. So, yeah, that's that's all I got. I I don't really have anything else here. She kind of goes and goes and goes and then... and then it just stops. There's a cliff. <laughs> yeah. And and then that's the end of it. Yeah, I don't know how much I really have to add there other than that it it makes me it makes me kind of want to read Beowulf. So so the uh, another thing to remember is that these were articles in the parents review. Yeah. And so the reason I think that she would have put such a large section in there of just, you know, quoting exactly what the book said so that parents can read that selection mm-hmm. from the book and be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of an advertisement. I will save up and buy that. Yeah, which makes sense. But yeah, so that's chapter 14. 14. Chapter whatever it was, chapter 14. Read Beowulf, I guess. To, to get heroic impulse. To, to hold before your children yeah. these larger-than-life people who have attributes that they should emulate. Well, because we've talked about it in the past. We've talked about how good it is to have heroes, to have people to look up to. I'm trying to remember where it was. Where Oh, it was here in uh, Faith and Duty, XII 12, chapter 12. Page one twenty five. She tells the story of the great duke. You tell the child that he that the great duke slept in so narrow a bed that he could not turn over because said he, when you want to turn over, it's time to get up. And then the boy wants to be like the hero of Waterloo. So she's talked about how we want to give our children heroes so that they have someone to emulate, so that they have someone to live up to, so that as they're going through their play, they can pretend to be that person. So that they can play the fight of Beowulf and Grendel. And then one child can beat the other child with his arm. 
Child one can beat child two with child two's arm. Because that's healthy. You're not going to get over that, are you? Oh, it's great. I, I'm so happy that you told me that. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, if your child, if your children are beating each other with their arms, you should probably seek medical aid. <laughs> if, it's, if it's just dislocated, you can put it back in yourself. <laughs> if... If the arm has been dislodged completely from the child's if body. If it's amputated, yeah, you should go to the... Either that or just start digging. <laughs> the local ER. <laughs> you know. Uh, you might not want to have your children emulate quite that much. But also, if your child can rip off another child's arm, that's pretty impressive. Really? Is this where we're devolving to? <laughs> I don't have anything else to say at this point about this chapter. I'm pretty much... I'd say I'm grasping for straws, but really I'm having your child grasp for arms. So bad, John. I just I love the fact that he rips off Grendel's arm, and that's that's the end of it. And then in the... So Crystal has a picture book here, and in the picture, the next picture is Beowulf holding the arm of Grendel like a club. Brandishing an arm. I'm going to beat you with your own arm. Wap, wap, wap. It's wonderful. Although he doesn't kill Grendel. No, he just lets Grendel bleed out. Because Grendel's missing an arm. He shrieked as his whole arm came away from his body because his shoulder burst. Yeah, I'd he shrieked He fled too. the hall, bellowing with pain and terror. Back to the marshes he ran, leaving a bloody trail across the fens. Death found him there. Grendel sank into the muck from which he came, never to rise again. Yeah, he bled out because he lost an arm. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's awesome. From north to south, on land or sea, upon the earth or beneath the tall sky, never lived a man equal to Beowulf, Ecthiao's son, slayer of Grendel. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. <laughs>